You know that feeling you get when you find a really great deal on something? It's like, wow, today's my day. Well, you can get that great deal feeling over and over again at the Safeway Stock-Up Sale. Enjoy aisle after aisle of big savings on everything you need. Use your club card and get fresh USDA Choice Beef Boneless Chuck Roast for only $3.99 a pound. Selected varieties of General Mills cereals are just $1.49 each. And find coupons throughout the store for amazing deals on stock-up favorites. You're going to love the Safeway Stock-Up Sale. It's just better. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Holistic Living, brought to you by East West Healing and Performance. And now, here are your hosts, Josh and Jeannie Rubin. from East West Healing and Performance. Jeannie and Ray will be uh, joining us in a couple minutes. Just want to welcome everyone to another show. It's been a little bit. It's been a a little bit of trouble getting Ray back on, but I think the break was good, and I think we get a good show ahead of us on milk, calcium, and hormones in the body. It's such a big topic. Of course, like always, we could probably chat forever. But we got Ray anywhere from 60 to 120 minutes. It's going to be a great show. We will be taking callers towards the end. The call number is 347-426-3546. And all I ask of everyone is if you do ask questions, please keep the questions per the topic of the show. And try to keep the questions um, more pertaining to the show and just general information rather than, rather than just, you know, personal self-diagnostics because we don't know enough to really help you. And sometimes we're just going to keep going down the endless path and we want to take as many callers. So just keep that in mind. Um, if you want to learn more about Ray Pete, you can visit the website at raypete.com, www.raypeat.com. Uh, Ray's got a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Oregon. Uh, he specializes in physiology. He's taught at many schools uh, around the U.S. It was uh, from Oregon to Montana, as well as teaching in Mexico, and as well as doing a lot of private nutritional counseling. He actually started his work with progesterone-related hormones back in 1968. So Ray's been doing this for a while, and as you know from reading his articles and books and listening to him, he's he's quite the genius, um, a humble genius at that. So if you want to learn more about him, visit his site. He's got a lot of great articles on his site that you can print out and read. He's also got a newsletter that you can subscribe to. It's about, I don't know, $28 for 12 issues, and it depends on where you live. He's actually held off on that, or I think the books as well, because of the volume of emails and orders that he's getting. So just be a little patient. And at the same time, like we've always talked about, a lot of people have been emailing Ray, which I think is great. He loves his work, but at the same time, mine, you know, uh, he's got a life too. And, um, you know, unfortunately, money, you know, rules the world. That's just how it goes. So all we ask is if you're emailing him and emailing him and emailing him, Please donate, you know, whether it's $5, $10, I don't know, $100. We've sent him some money. Just send him something just to say thanks for all the help that he's been giving you. I'm not saying just because you're listening to the show you have to send him money. But if you're doing a lot of dialogue via email with him, you're still taking up time, and unfortunately time is money. So just donate something. And a lot of people hear me incorrectly and say, well, I don't have $100. You can send $5. It's the thought that really counts, so please keep that in mind. You can learn more about us at our website at eastwesthealing.com. Our website's getting a huge overhaul right now from content to upgrades. So in the next three months, it's going to be changing dramatically. We're going to have some product on there, some programs, 
lot of great new things going on with our business. Keep in mind, we consult physically and nutritionally with clients all over the world. You name a country, we pretty much have a client there, and we get great success. So uh, feel free to give us a call. And keep in mind, there's other practitioners all over the world. Uh, you know, it's really about finding the practitioner that works for you, your personality, your needs. So keep that in mind. But feel free to give, uh, check out our website, and feel free to give us a call. So today's show is on milk, calcium, and hormones. We're going to be talking about dairy, the degradation of it, where it comes from, why, rec why Ray recommends so much of it uh, in his philosophies based on a lot of work that he's done. Talk about calcium. We'll talk about blood labs, parathyroid hormone. How do we keep those levels regulated to downregulate inflammation? And maybe if we get too much calcium, what that can cause and correlate this with inflammation in the hormonal system in our body. Um, so it's going to be a great show. We've got a lot of questions for Ray. Um, and like I said, it's been a while, so I think he's got a lot to add to the show. I'm just waiting for Jeannie and Ray to pop on so I can um, pull them in. Our next show, don't have it scheduled yet. Um, I emailed Ray and asked him um, to if we could do a July show, and hopefully we can schedule it because a lot of people have been emailing us um, and really would like a show on serotonin, tryptophan, and endotoxin and how that affects our gut, our behavior, psychology, and stuff like that. So I'm hoping we get a show scheduled for July. Um, don't forget, of course, to check out our Blog Talk Radio show page. That's blogtalkradio.com backslash eastwesthealing, and you can check out when our next shows are. As well as you can Facebook us. Um, you can look up my name, Joshua Rubin, or Jeannie Rubin, to follow a lot of the posts that we put on Facebook in regards to the information that we put, the articles, the YouTubes, as well as we schedule our shows on there so you can keep up to date on when those shows are. So, I am running out of things to actually say, and you didn't call to listen to me talk. You called to listen to Ray. Um, but I'm still waiting for them to come on so I can call them in. Um, so... We have to wait a couple minutes. Um, oh, there we go. Hold on. Just uh, let me get them in there. Hello, Jeannie and Ray. Nope. They dropped the call. As you know, with this stuff, there can be technical difficulties. Um, keep in mind, I just wanted to bring something up, and of course, this is my show and giving my perceptions, but... Remember that um, when we're educating you, and, and Ray's educating, I, I should say, you know, we're not telling you what to do. He's sharing with you his philosophies. That's all he's doing. Uh, I don't do this show for my personal gain. I do it 100% so he can have a platform to share his philosophies, and it's not a place for him to defend himself. This is a, a place for him to actually share, so keep that in mind as we do this because we get lots of emails and say, well, can Ray defend this? Can Ray defend that? That's not the place for this. This is supposed to be a sharing place. Okay? Here we go. Let's get them on. Hi, Josh. Alrighty, Ray, you there, Jeannie? Yes. Hi. How's it going, Ray? Okay. Good. <laughs> so today, did you want to um, add anything before we start the show in regards to maybe yourself or in regards to the show topic? Oh, no. Uh, I've been okay. interested in milk for a long time, probably 55 years or so. I've been studying uh, what's going on with the cultural antagonisms to it. Right. Uh, 
it was in the 50s when uh, the government had been uh, collecting samples of organisms from around the world to monitor the effects of the atom bomb tests. And uh, they wanted to know how it was accumulating in young people. And so they started collecting baby teeth and uh, the um, isotope that concentrated most in teeth happened to be strontium-90. And uh, then after they had been doing that for years, it came out that strontium-90 was causing leukemia in children, among other cancers. But um, when that got into the news, uh, people said, well, baby teeth uh, show the radioactive isotope, which is similar to calcium, and uh, milk is rich in calcium, and milk is uh, probably the main place babies are are getting their strontium-90. So uh, a whole wave went through the culture for a few years, advising people not to drink milk because of the strontium-90 in it. But already in the 1950s, 56 or 7, people had analyzed the composition of diets and found that the uh, fallout into the soil uh, produced quite a high ratio of strontium-90 to uh, available calcium. But plants extracted the calcium since that was what their their cells needed and left behind a good proportion of the uh, strontium. And then when cows ate the vegetation, they again extracted a high proportion of calcium and left out a lot of strontium. And so when you add up the um, to get the essential nutrients, if you get them from uh, vegetable matter rather than milk, you're getting extremely high concentrations of the fallout isotopes. And uh, milk is a good filtering process to eliminate all kinds of contaminants, especially in a period of high radiation. Uh, It filters out the radioactive isotopes. So... I guess it's a huge topic. I mean, there's so many people out there that say, well, stay away from it because we're not cows. We shouldn't drink cow's milk. And there's other people that say, well, you should only drink raw milk. Pasteurized milk is so bad. I guess we need to rewind it a little bit and say, of course, you know, your philosophy is you believe it's very beneficial. I mean, why do you think, you know, looking at milk, I think the biggest topic is like allergies. Everyone says, oh, I'm intolerant to milk. And the same thing with other foods. Why do you think there's so much uh, degradation of milk itself, and why why are we seeing so many of these allergies, and why are people so afraid of it? Um, actually, um, the United States cleaned up the commercial dairy industry uh, 40 or 50 years ago, uh, cut out uh, the use of uh, the mo- most dangerous insecticides that, that had been uh, getting into the milk and uh, were known to cause breast cancer and other things. But in the 60s, the Environmental Protection Agency and FDA uh, banned the use of of these insecticides around cows and dairies, and they uh, controlled somewhat the additives going into the uh, cow food. Um, Israel was quite a bit slower 
than the U.S. to ban uh, one of these insecticides in particular. But when they did in the 60s, their breast cancer rate plunged tremendously. Uh, but the U.S. on that particular issue had had been uh, uh, leading the world in, in cleaning up the milk supply. And that was far ahead of cleaning up the meat supply. Uh, so when you look at at agricultural uh, industry in general, uh, the dairy is still probably the cleanest food available. Now, one one part of your milk article in regards to like I, I think it's in regards to what they're feeding animals, and it was uh, kind of something I want you to clarify because didn't really make sense, and I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce the word correctly. But you talked about plants, and you talked about when plants are stressed, they produce these enzymes. How do you pronounce it? Uh, chitinases or chitinase? Um, or chitin chitinase. Chitinase, okay. Can you elaborate um, that uh, on that a little bit well, regarding dairy? Uh, that's uh, something you find in, in lots of foods that are grown in stressed plants. That's a plant enzyme that is, is protective against uh, insects in particular but it is uh, strongly allergenic to any animal. And uh, it, it, in small amounts, it's produced in a stressed animal on, under the influence of estrogen. So it's possible that that's a factor in, in meat and eggs and milk, but uh, probably not, not in a practical sense. The main allergens that get into the milk are uh, for example, if they let cows graze on pastures that uh, have lots of allergenic weeds, that will go right into the milk, uh, enough of the allergens that people can react. Uh, you can usually taste the funny food in the milk if you um, go around the cow's pasture and, and see what it's eating and uh, squeeze some of the leaves uh, you'll often identify what it is that gives the milk a funny flavor. And some small dairies aren't very alert to what their cows are eating, and uh, that can uh, cause just an individual dairy's milk to be more allergenic than average. Right. Now, Going back to the intolerances, because uh, we know from our business, everyone's like, oh, I'm intolerant to dairy, intolerant to dairy, I get a runny nose, I, I've done a lab, yada, yada, yada. But I know you talk about how even the day of the lab having a severe blood sugar handling issue, or if you have a damaged metabolism, you can't regulate blood sugar, that can actually create the mechanism in the GI system to create the intolerance. Can you talk about that a little bit and the validity of the food intolerance lab in regards to dairy? Um, the um uh, the tests for allergens are uh, really just um, a very vague indicator of, of the fact that your immune system reacts to everything you are exposed to. And usually the uh, finding the antibodies to a particular substance mean that you have become tolerant to that substance. So I just don't pay any attention to the lab tests for allergies. But uh, the intestine adjusts its enzymes within just a few weeks, uh, probably 
usually it only takes two weeks to have a, a complete adaptation of of the digestive enzymes. But until your intestine has adjusted its enzymes to a, a new kind of diet, um, much of that food is going to um, be undigested and it will feed bacteria rather than feeding the person. And uh, the uh, strange new growth of bacteria will produce lots of chemicals that can be toxic and uh, allergenic. And so if a person isn't used to eating vegetables and they eat vegetables, they'll often get a sore throat and runny nose, uh, sore joints, headaches, and so on. And uh, it's much of of the uh, food sensitivity issues just uh, adapting too suddenly to a diet, failing to adapt when they change because they, they do it too suddenly. So you're saying when somebody introduces milk back into the diet to take it very, very slowly for the purpose of allowing the body to adapt. Yeah. Um, even if a person does have lactose uh, intolerance from a lactase deficiency, mm-hmm. uh, tests of that have, have found that if they drink a cup per meal or less, uh, they don't have the uh, diarrhea that could be produced by drinking a pint of milk on an empty stomach. And if, even if they uh, have had biopsies that show uh, a deficiency of the lactase enzyme, uh, that can be induced in about two weeks just by introducing uh, an occasional small amount of milk with their diet. The, um, the enzymes, uh, are the, the cells sense the presence of a nutrient and the enzymes are gradually induced until the intestine uh, can then handle normal amounts. And um, bacterial infections and inflammation can cause the loss of lactase enzymes and probably many other important digestive enzymes. And experiments with uh, supplementing thyroid or progesterone have found that you can induce or restore the lactase that has been deficient just by um, increasing those anti-stress hormones. So, with you know, does it have to do with their effect on, of course, increasing metabolism and helping to regulate blood sugar and down-regulating estrogen and helping to reestablish that small intestine integrity so you can break down the lactose? Um, because I know you talk about how hypothyroidism can uh, decrease lactase production uh, in, in causing a lactose quote-unquote intolerance, the same thing how, you know, progesterone deficiency is actually seen with people that are lactose intolerance because uh, they're not releasing lactase. Um, yeah. Um, inflammation uh, is probably the, the basic problem there. Mm-hmm. Uh, thyroid and progesterone by restoring uh, energy and normal function uh, bypass the inflammatory processes and inflammation shifts the cell function <clears throat> to an emergency state and uh, you tend to lose uh, a lot of functional enzymes 
uh, in an inflamed state. Right. So I guess in regards to dairy, maybe you could elaborate a little more. What, um, you know, if we read your philosophies, you're, you're probably more than anyone so heavy in regards to dairy. You know, what? why do you feel dairy is so important and what are some of the benefits that people can get from eating or drinking dairy? Uh, well, again, part of it, the, the biggest part is probably uh, the alternatives. Uh, like uh, 1960, uh, the main focus against milk <clears throat> was its strontium-90 content, but when you look at the alternatives, it turned out milk was the best food for avoiding strontium-90. And it's the same with um, uh, industrial additives, uh, accidental pollutants. Uh, just about every place you look in the food industry, uh, things are far worse than milk. Uh, some fruits, if you can find fruits that aren't grown in uh, large-scale industrial orchards, uh, bananas are an example of one of the uh, worst uh, products for for chemical use and overproduction, bad soil, stressful conditions. Uh, but if you can find uh, unstressed fruits, uh, those are very free of, of toxins and contaminants relative to most other um, food products. Now, it would be safe to say in regards to dairy, you know, just for the public listening in, that it's kind of like a complete macronutrient because it's carb, it's protein, fat in a sense. It's it's very balanced in regards to regulating blood sugar, down-regulating inflammation. That it's got a lot of pro-thyroid and progesterone properties at the same time. Um, and yeah, it, it even contains some testosterone. Thyroid, progesterone, and testosterone uh, are important for the uh, young animal. In, in human milk, uh, they found that there was enough thyroid hormone in human milk that babies whose thyroids were destroyed by living near a uh, developing near a three-mile island during the accident, uh, they didn't suffer any symptoms of hypothyroidism as long as they were being breastfed because of the, the high protective hormone content of the milk. Yeah, you talk awesome. a lot about you talk? Go ahead, Josh. Go for it. No, go for it. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, you talk about the proteins, the fats, the hormones, um, all those really great things that milk has to offer us, but one of your things that you stress the most is the calcium that it has to offer and how, you know, um, how the calcium, the parathyroid, all these things work together in actually assisting the body in having normal levels of calcium with chronic stress, so on and so forth. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us and kind of... Yeah, that's really a, a subject for a week of seminars. <laughs> it, it, I can set it up, Ray. Right. I can set it up easily. <laughs> it, 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 it involves everything at every level of the organism. Uh, yeah. the calcium is... Um, Potentially, it's it's the uh, thing that causes 
all of the problems, allergies, cancer, uh, heart attacks, and, and so on. But uh, when calcium is regulated properly, uh, calcium protects against all of those things. And the, one of the central things in regulating calcium is a parathyroid hormone. And when you're deficient in calcium in your foods, your parathyroid hormone increases and uh, it can temporarily keep your uh, blood uh, calcium up to the proper level, but it does that by taking it out of the bones. And uh, when you eat an excess of calcium, that tends to suppress the parathyroid hormone. And uh, since they've been doing uh, dialysis for kidney disease, uh, that has been a, a way to get a, a better insight into how the parathyroid hormone works than uh, had been done in just ordinary research. Um, they have found that if they remove the parathyroid hormone, the parathyroid gland entirely as far as they can, that they can uh, solve many of the uh, deadly effects of chronic kidney dialysis. Uh, the um, oh, hypertension and insomnia, for example, are, are two of the things that are immediately corrected by removing the parathyroid gland. And uh, when you look at the effects of the parathyroid hormone excess in such things as dialysis patients, uh, you can get an idea of the range of things that eating extra calcium can can uh, correct uh, by suppressing the parathyroid hormone. Uh, insomnia is is just one of them. Uh, probably everywhere calcium is involved in a an excitatory inflammation promoting way, you can uh, probably reverse it. Um, most of the time just by increasing the calcium in your diet. But uh, the, the, the two uh, vitamins that are important for uh, making the tissue handle uh, calcium properly also contribute to lowering the parathyroid hormone. Uh, vitamin K and vitamin D uh, help to uh, handle the the calcium so that the uh, parathyroid gland senses it and shuts down. And uh, some some other nutrients, for example, vitamin A and uh, niacin amide uh, work in that same direction as vitamin K and vitamin D, helping to uh, balance the ratio of calcium to phosphorus and restrain the parathyroid gland. Uh, foods, when they have put animals on a, a vitamin D deficient diet, they find that giving the animal sugar instead of starch will keep its bones from developing rickets. <laughs> it isn't that sugar has a vitamin D action, it's just that it uh, lowers the stress and uh, makes uh, the animal adapt better to a vitamin D deficiency. And if there's a calcium deficiency, letting the animal 
drink salty water will, uh, for a long time, will make up for a calcium deficiency in the diet by helping the uh, kidneys to retain the calcium by uh, apparently by substituting loss of sodium for loss of calcium. So you mentioned supplements, and I kind of want to go back to that a little bit because, you know, based off of reading you and hearing you speak, we know that parathyroid hormone, of course, is inflammatory, and we need to downregulate and figure out why. There's so many people out there listening that think because they did a lab and their calcium levels are low, they need to start pumping calcium. And you're saying a little different. It has nothing to do with the cal. I mean, it does in a sense, but we need to downregulate parathyroid hormone first. So, what could? What are the implications of taking just taking straight out calcium? Can you take too much calcium? Those those things just for the listeners. Um, I often see people with a blood calcium uh, where it should be nine or ten. I see people with eleven, twelve, or thirteen, and getting them to eat more calcium. Uh, maybe take some vitamin D and vitamin K, they can very quickly get their calcium down to normal. And the reason it's high is generally because they are eating too much phosphate and uh, overdriving their parathyroid hormone. Right. Now, could things like eating a lot of muscle meats and tryptophan or even taking, you know, 5-HB, any of those things create the facilitation of parathyroid hormone in itself, causing um, more inflammation? Uh, Yeah, Uh, many things uh, do increase the parathyroid. Uh, Serotonin uh, does have a direct action. Estrogen, uh, uh, cortisol, prolactin uh, all have parallel and uh, promoting effects on the the parathyroid hormone. Uh, Progesterone and, and thyroid are the main things that help to inhibit the parathyroid. Uh, Part of that is that carbon dioxide produced in the cell, um, as it flows out of the cell that's constantly respiring, it forces uh, calcium to leave the cell, and that relaxes the cell because calcium should be outside the cell. When it's in the cell, uh, it tends to excite the cell and cause inflammation and lactic acid production. So once you get the streaming uh, flow of carbon dioxide out of the cell, you're um, getting calcium into the safe situation. And it happens that parathyroid hormone activates glycolysis and the formation of lactic acid. And that's a big part of how it dissolves the bone to... um, provide more calcium for the bloodstream. And so everything that shifts the balance away from lactic acid production and towards carbon dioxide production uh, helps to regulate, get the calcium back into the bloodstream, out of cells, uh, ready to go back into the bones. And carbon dioxide, um, when they do tissue culture of, for example, of piece of a mouse skull, which is very thin and can be kept in culture, uh, the the parathyroid hormone uh, tends to dissolve it, causing it to produce lactic acid. But if you increase the carbon dioxide, 
the carbon dioxide directly uh, starts forming crystals of calcium carbonate and restoring the um, mineral structure of the bone. Uh, the first crystal laid down in bone is calcium carbonate, but as the bone matures, uh, that some of the carbon dioxide is replaced by phosphate. Wow, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm always salivating. Um, you talk a lot about CO2, and I know a lot of people have been emailing us and asking us, and I know it's a little bit off the beaten path here, and I'm not sure if you even have an answer, but a lot of people are asking because you're talking about how it actually helps to regulate the thyroid, and you just talked about it a lot. What does carbonated water have to do with that? Can you actually, can that be used? I mean, can we use CO2 levels to regulate the parathyroid? Of course, by regulating blood sugar and all that food, but can we use things like baking soda or um, carbonated water to actually facilitate that process? Um, yeah, uh, people have found that um, the um, exchange between bicarbonate and carbon dioxide is so quick that when you give a person a, a dose of uh, sodium bicarbonate, the um, exchange of the bicarbonate to carbon dioxide is quick at the cell surface of a stressed cell. And so you can actually acidify and restore to normal a stressed cell with carbon dioxide, with a baking soda, because the sodium will quickly get lost out the urine, leaving the body as as needed acidified with the intracellular carbon dioxide, which um, puts the cell back into its anti-inflammatory resting state. And uh, the the excess uh, sodium, it's the same as in the, the rat experiment, where if you let the rat uh, drink salty water, it doesn't it isn't so desperately dependent on calcium in its diet. Um, the um, alkali minerals can substitute to a great extent to, for, for each other so that a slight excess of, of magnesium or sodium or potassium will help to spare uh, calcium in a stress situation. And calcium can uh, likewise um, make up for a, a deficiency of one of the others. Uh, um, for example, in a, if you're having cramps, it might essentially be a magnesium deficiency, but you can often stop the cramp with uh, just baking soda or uh, milk for the calcium or uh, fruit for the, the high potassium content. Um, you mean actually ingesting the baking soda? Uh, yeah, the, um, okay. or or salty water sometimes does the right. same thing because it uh, it lets you rearrange the um, the balance of your uh, alkaline minerals yeah. and and uh, helps to make up for a, a, a crisis deficiency of one of them. Right. Awesome. Well, let's kind of rewind it a little bit, and let's go back to dairy a little bit, and we'll go back to calcium because we just have tons of questions, and that, for me, what you just talked about was incredible. It was awesome. But 
I know a lot of people are listening, and I know you talk about the twofold of dairy. You know, you talk about raw, but you also talk about how some people can't handle raw, and you actually recommend for those people because of the pasteurization of the bacteria and the enzymes that they actually can handle it. Um, and you recommend that, which, of course, goes against what a lot of people, you know, talk about. Um, can you elaborate on the reason for that? <clears throat> uh, for why pasteurized, you mean, is, is better? Well, or? Yeah, I mean, why some people can handle raw and some people can't, and oh, why you would well, recommend pasteurized. Uh, every cow has its particular balance of bacteria, uh, many of, of which will will be chronically living in their udder. And uh, it, it's a natural thing. A healthy cow will have a, a very high bacteria count in its milk. And uh, that the individual cow will change its bacterial balance uh, according to what it's eating and the season of the year, uh, the particular weather that the cow is having, uh, it's uh, extremely variable. And if a person in their own bacterial ecology uh, has a bad reaction to some of the bacteria that they're getting from the cow, uh, they can just try a different uh, dairy. uh, might still be raw, but uh, even pasteurized milk still has enough of these uh, individual herd bacteria that uh, trying a different brand of pasteurized milk is sometimes all it takes. And I know a few people who uh, tend to get uh, gas or diarrhea from uh, most of the supermarket milks, but if they uh, drink only the ultra-pasteurized milk that has been heated uh, I think to 135 degrees Fahrenheit is a typical temperature uh, that they tolerate that nicely. Uh, The ultra-pasteurized milk has a somewhat lower vitamin content and it doesn't taste as good but uh, some people do tolerate that better. Yeah, we've noted that with a lot of clients, and it definitely goes against the norm, but it works. Um, so it's just an interesting interesting caveat there. Now, what about uh, yogurts? I know a lot of people talk about yogurts, how healthy they are, and I know your take on fermented foods, and I know your take on yogurts and lactic acid production and stress. Can you elaborate on that for the listeners and, you know, the, the pluses and the minuses of that and maybe when we should or shouldn't eat it? Well, uh, the first worst concern is to make sure it doesn't contain carrageen and, and uh, yeah. uh, gums. Uh, those are showing up in more and more foods, especially uh, yogurt and kefir and, and uh, uh, cheeses and such. Uh, I, I think it, it even shows up in some uh, so-called plain milk products. Uh, I've seen products that uh, were intended to add the vitamin A and D to milk that contained a gum such as alginate or or carrageenan. So uh, the the added vitamin is is one of the potential sources of contamination. But if if it says that it's just uh, fermented milk, yogurt, uh, that's the safest kind of yogurt and Still, it's better not to eat more than a, 
a few spoonfuls per day because any lactic acid, especially the kind formed by bacteria, is um, extra work for your liver. Um, the lactic acid uh, that contacts your intestine cells, for example, uh, activates the uh, fibrosis-producing system, stimulating collagen production. And a chronic exposure to lactic acid increases a, a general uh, tendency to overproduction of, of uh, all of the inflammatory uh, system, but uh, the cumulative thing is um, a collagen uh, accumulation and aging. And but the uh, the immediate effect of the lactic acid on the liver is that the liver is set up to um, turn lactic acid back into glucose. But to do that, it takes energy, and so it it consumes glucose to uh, get rid of the lactic acid. And so it basically uh, is a, a drain on your blood sugar reserves. So I want to talk about that a little more, but can you elaborate a little bit more on carry, uh, the carrageenan and the gums? And Because, you know, we find them in a lot of different things. Like people, I think people need to realize what they are, what they do. I mean, I've seen them in liver pâtés. Um, oh, so there's, there's... Even, even roast beef. Uh, they can inject a solution of carrageenan into roast beef. And uh, I've, I've seen advertisements. Uh, you can increase the weight of your product and decrease the meat content by 30% by plumping it up with this jelly made from seaweed. <laughs> and uh, this stuff is analogous to our uh, uh, connective tissue, uh, the um, cartilage material and uh, the break breakdown material in the bloodstream, uh, uh, heparin. It's a sulfated polysaccharide, and it's close enough to our own regulatory uh, heparin and connective tissue system that it can be interpreted as a sign of damage to our own connective tissue, and uh, so it can cause uh, very acute immune reactions. It's used uh, experimentally uh, to cause uh, the, the research inflammation. Uh, it's, it's a very predictable and effective uh, promoter of inflammation that, uh, for example, they'll inject it into a rat paw and then uh, test anti-inflammatory things for their uh, protective effects. Um, the um, the use of it in food is um, justified by experiments showing that the native carrageenan, as it is uh, prepared right out of the seaweed, uh, doesn't induce cancer in vitro tests, but if you allow bacteria to break down the carrageenan into smaller fragments that more easily get into cells, that will cause cancer. And our intestine contains uh, bacteria that are able to do that breakdown, but it, uh, there is such a big 
uh, investment in in using it in the food industry that the cancer regulating agencies uh, don't want to acknowledge that the fact that when you eat native carrageenan and your bacteria are uh, a risk for producing the carcinogenic degraded carrageenan which which is uh, well known as a carcinogen and I'm not sure if you mentioned it as well, but it, it synthesizes with other toxins as well, unsaturated fats and estrogen, which can com just compound the whole issue in the GI system in the liver. And I know you talked about how it's implicated, or you found that it's implicated in a lot of different um, GI diseases like colitis and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think people should be aware that this stuff is in most dairy products. It's in a lot of beef products. I've seen in the liver organic liver pâtés. It's in a lot of organic you know, goat milk ice creams, and um, you'll know it's in there because you're going to get a ton of gas and bloating. Um, so start reading labels, and Ray has a lot of stuff on his website on carrageenan to educate yourself on the implications and what it does and where it comes from. Um, can you talk about uh, uh, dairy in regards to saturated fats? Of course, we know you're huge on saturated fats, but maybe for the listeners, give us maybe some key points, you know, Dairy is important because of A, B, C, and D, but also the saturated fats, and maybe why we need these. Um, the um, there's a liver disease research group led by A. A. Nanchi. Uh, he has um, demonstrated a curative effect on hepatitis and cirrhosis from uh, adding the saturated fats of uh, a great variety of them, all the way from coconut oil through uh, the butter fats uh, up into the the waxy long chain saturated fats, and uh, similarly they have shown that fish oils and the various seed oils that are polyunsaturated uh, exacerbate the liver diseases and inflammations. Uh, the the uh, breakdown products uh, of the um, unsaturated fats. Uh, produce uh, a, a lot of the uh, inflammatory diseases, and just by substituting saturated fats, uh, you're going to have an anti-inflammatory effect generally and somewhat of an antioxidant effect by um, interrupting the um, free radical oxidation product uh, of the um, polyunsaturated. Everyone's body with aging uh, accumulates more and more of the polyunsaturated fats, and uh, the uh, probably the saturated fats become more important protectively and therapeutically uh, after a person is is uh, metabolically slowing down in their 20s and 30s. Uh, a kid who's uh, growing like, like a, a small uh, or a two or three year old kid might have twice the metabolic rate that an adult does, and they can burn up much more of the polyunsaturated fats. As the metabolism slows down, uh, even a small amount of the polyunsaturates in the diet will tend to accumulate and uh, increase the tissue inflammation and uh, uh, oxidation processes. So uh, there, there's constantly some turnover. So if you can 
uh, keep your food high on the saturation side, uh, you can uh, progressively, uh, usually you can make some headway against those stored uh, polyunsaturateds and might take years to uh, restore a good balance, but it's worth the, the effort to uh, minimize the polyunsaturates. Right. So we're seeing, guys, it's, it's a complete macronutrient, it's got saturated fats. It's a low in iron, correct? Um, yeah. The, the reason it's low in iron is that um, the, um, during pregnancy, uh, the estrogen of the, of the mother is one of its functions, well, two functions are to cause the intestine to absorb more calcium and more iron. Uh, a woman will typically absorb nine or ten times as much iron out of her uh, given food as a man does. Uh, so uh, an iron supplement is especially risky uh, when your estrogen is high. Uh, and the um, one of the functions of estrogen is to lower oxygen tension, and the fetus is in a situation of low oxygen tension. And so it accumulates uh, iron partly from the estrogen exposure but partly from the uh, oxygen uh, deficit. Uh, so the fetus reaches uh, its uh, uh, maturity uh, and is born overcharged with iron. It typically has enough iron in its tissues that it doesn't need to eat any iron for about six months to a year. And so milk is designed to let the baby grow into its potentially toxic uh, overcharge with iron. And so milk is, is relatively very free of iron. Um, and that's one of the uh, protective effects that um, many of our foods uh, have a potential uh, overdose of iron, especially the meats. And uh, men, by the time they're 50, are uh, generally well overloaded with iron, and that contributes to uh, free radical oxidation and uh, is probably a big factor in heart disease and, and liver disease and so on. And uh, women, to some extent, are protected as long as they're menstruating, uh, throwing off some of the iron every month. But when they stop menstruating, then they, their tissues start overloading with iron. And milk and cheese are uh, foods that are deficient in iron. And so adding them generously to the diet will help you prevent that chronic tendency to overcharge on iron. Right. And Ray has a lot on the site, guys, about iron, and maybe we can do a show on that sometime, but that's a huge topic. Um, so I learned so many benefits of milk. You know, it, it's just amazing. What about cheeses? I know you talk about cheeses, and we have to really watch for, of course, what type of cheese that we eat, but also what's in the cheese and the cultures in the cheese. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for the listeners? Uh, yeah, recently I saw an advertisement for one of the big uh, additive companies that says that 60-some percent of the cheeses now made in the world use their cultures. And their cultures are 
basically from bacteria and fungus, and they're cheap substitutes for the uh, natural, naturally grown uh, bacterial and fungal cultures that that cheeses have. Uh, their their uh, traditional location and type of cow and so on uh, has determined the type of bacteria and fungus. And uh, traditionally, they're made with uh, bovine uh, digestive enzymes as a way to clot the cheese. And uh, they're now using fungal and bacterial substitutes for these uh, beef enzymes. And uh, that's almost all cheeses commercially now are risky because of those uh, microorganisms that are used uh, in uh, substituting for the traditional uh, methods. Uh, and that's besides any uh, additive for modifying the texture. Right, and I think this is where like dairy and, and like I mentioned at the beginning, cheeses get so, you get such a bad rap and it's really about looking at where it comes from, what's in it, and a lot of the times it's really not the dairy, it's the cultures, it's the carrageen, and it's what the animals fed, it's the it's all these different things, and we're blaming dairy when dairy has so many great qualities, um, which is kind of sad. Now, what about whey protein powders? I know you talk about that, and there's a lot of people out there that just, you know, we can talk about protein and diet on a whole other show, but there's so many people out there using protein powders, and um. I know you talk... I'm sorry? Uh, about uh, 40 or 50 years ago, uh, the dairies that were producing cheese uh, would give their whey in a liquid state fresh out of the, the cheese factory to hog farmers. And uh, in that fresh state, it was mixed with other foods for hog slop, and it, it produced very healthy pigs. And uh, as... as um, a stimulant to growth when mixed with with a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables and other uh, waste foods. It, it was very good pig food compared to the corn and soybeans that pigs are now getting fed. But when it's sold, because pigs aren't eating it anymore, they have to dispose of it some way. And uh, the process of dehydrating it, turning it into a powder, since um, milk products are very high in in the fragile amino acids, including tryptophan and cysteine, the process of dehydrating it uh, increases the oxidation of the protein and not only lowers the protein value, but increases its its toxicity and allergenicity. So I don't recommend any dehydrated food except in emergency where they're convenient for for transportation and storage but as a regular thing uh, dehydrated anything is, is uh, a potential risk can you elaborate a little bit more i remember from your article you talked about albumin in regards to whey protein um, um, yeah the um, casein that you get in the cheese and you throw away largely the the albumin fraction, uh, the cheese, the casein protein turns out to be anti-inflammatory and anti-stress, helps hold down the um, cortisol production. Uh, 
and uh, you get the opposite effect from the Hue fraction. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it has many uh, direct nutritional problems. Probably the worst one is that most of the uh, calcium stays with the cheese, and so you have a protein which is easily degraded and uh, lacks the anti-stress factors and uh, is deficient in calcium. Interesting. Um, Go for it. Uh, one of the reasons a lot of people give if they um, have um, overcome the the idea that milk forms mucus or is a risk for uh, various diseases and so on. Uh, one of their arguments is that it makes them fat, but uh, the, the um, all the research on animals uh, and uh, the uh, as far as it goes, the the human research shows that milk is probably the best reducing food there is. Uh, the mechanisms for that are now known. Uh, not only the the anti-stress effect of the casein and the good balance of saturated fats and so on, but the the calcium alone is a very important uh, metabolic regulator that it happens to inhibit the fat-forming enzymes, fatty acid synthase, and incidentally, that's uh, a characteristic enzyme that goes wild in cancer, uh, but uh, calcium and milk inhibit that uh, fatty acid synthase, uh, reducing the, the formation of fats, and at the same time, it activates the uncoupling proteins in the mitochondria which are associated with uh, increased longevity uh, because they, by increasing the metabolic rate, the uncoupling proteins uh, burn calories faster, but they uh, protect against free radical oxidation. Uh, they they uh, pull the, the fuel through the oxidation process so fast, in effect, that uh, none of it goes astray in random oxidation, where if you inhibit your um, your energy-producing enzymes, uh, you tend to get random stray oxidations that damage the mitochondria. So the uncoupling proteins burn calories faster at the same time that you're reducing fat synthesis. And uh, milk is, uh, as far as I know, it's the the only food that uh, does both of those things simultaneously. Wow. Now, what about the, the pasteurized milk? A lot of people say, like, the calcium, the vitamins, they're all synthetic. Is there any concern over that, or are they, are they so low? And, if, of course, we're not just saying just drink dairy. We're talking about if you're using broth and gelatin and tropical fruits, you're getting all these other vitamins. It is, okay, is it okay, or is it, is it dangerous that it's kind of synthetic? Oh, well, it's... For one thing, it's a very small amount of the vitamins, and even though I'm allergic to um, just just a tiny amount of synthetic vitamin A, will give me a headache for a couple of days. Just just a trace of it, uh, I can drink a gallon of milk containing their 
added vitamin A and apparently other things in the milk protect me from that uh, intense allergic reaction to synthetic A. But it is a, a problem that they, to, to um, anything but whole milk, they're required to add uh, vitamin A and D in the United States. So you drink a gallon of milk a day? <laughs> um, probably that's been my average for 35 years or so. Um, now Going I think strong. I'm... I, I average probably now only two, two and a half, or three quarts uh, when I can get lots of orange juice or other. Yeah. So I'm guessing yep. that the good outweighs the bad when it comes to milk because it still has those high levels of tryptophan and whatnot. Is that yeah? The calcium, the, the calcium by stimulating our metabolism right. uh, keeps us more like the. Uh, the teenager metabolically who can handle and balance those things, but that's that's where gelatin and and fruit come in, uh, helping to shift the balance somewhat away from that high uh, tryptophan and cysteine content. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I don't want people to walk away from this going, "Oh my God, I'm going to start pounding milk and a gallon of milk and cheese," because course, guys, it's all individualized. There's so many other factors that you need to be doing nutritionally. You need to start slow. You're going to find the right type. It, there's a lot of factors, but what do you recommend calorically? I mean, do you, re- do you recommend that as like a, a power protein and really getting a lot of your calories uh, from dairy? Oh, um, uh, I, ideally, I, I would get half my calories anyway from fruit. Half your calories from fruit. Yeah, and uh, okay. the the um, proportion of protein, carbohydrate, and fat, it uh, probably should be something like a third of each. But uh, I'm not sure what the ideal is. It depends so much on the quality of each of them. Uh, right. Uh, avoiding starch and avoiding polyunsaturated fats and avoiding the um, very high tryptophan content proteins, uh, then you could go very high on any one of the major nutrients uh, without right. problem. Wow, great stuff on dairy. Um, let's kind of shift the gears a little, and we're talking about calcium, and of course we can go back to milk and filter it if needed, but... Um, we were talking about parathyroid hormone and it's inflammatory. Can, you know, because there's so much out there in, in, on all these different diets, and, I mean, this is the reason why I love your philosophy because it's not a diet. It's really aligning with how the body works. And there's so many diets out there, of course, it's all about weight loss, that, you know, and we all need to do our own thing, but it's all about high protein, high protein, high protein. Can a high protein diet, and this is, you know, for the listeners, or a diet that's low in carb or low in fat, can that actually create um, the overstimulation of parathyroid hormone? Um, yeah, because most protein comes with lots of phosphate. Uh, the um, grains, beans uh, are very bad protein but very high in phosphate. Meats are good protein but uh, uh, very high in phosphate. And uh, the um, 
ratio between phosphate and calcium is the main thing that activates the parathyroid hormone. And uh, so minimizing phosphate or increasing calcium is uh, extremely important. So when we're talking osteoporosis, because we see this a lot with people on the web and, and with clients, it's it's this high-protein thing that's going on, and that can be actually even more detrimental. Um, can you correlate that with, you correlated the demineralization of the bone by the parathyroid hormone. Um, does estrogen and cortisol also play a part in that process? Um, yeah, the parathyroid hormone uh, increases with um, a woman's menstrual cycle when estrogen is dominant, parathyroid hormone is highest, and uh, prolactin, cortisol, uh, increase the parathyroid hormone. Serotonin increases it. And it's interesting that uh, the um, things that estrogen increases, uh, prolactin, serotonin, parathyroid hormone, uh, cortisol, all of these are known to dissolve the bones. Uh, so it's very interesting that they promote estrogen as a bone strengthener. Uh, in the 50 or 60 years that women have uh, been taught to use estrogen so that now most American women uh, have used estrogen, the rate of breaking hips has increased. Uh, so since all of the mechanisms through which estrogen affects the, uh, the the parathyroid hormone, serotonin, uh, cortisol, and prolactin. Uh, those are all well established, and the um, those bone dissolving hormones are uh, uh, constantly present. For example, with aging, uh, a person's parathyroid hormone increases as the bone mineral density decreases. Uh, the, um, and there's a tendency for the cortisol to become dominant with aging and uh, uh, prolactin, uh, both in men and women, uh, has an increasing tendency uh, to uh, become dominant in age. Right. Now, of course, that has to do with, you know, the foods we eat and how we eat them and regulating our blood sugar to down-regulate glucocorticoids, which is cortisol. But um, progesterone would play a factor in that as well because, and I could be wrong with this, but progesterone in itself stimulates, what is it, the um, uh, osteoblast to help rebuild bone. The, the estrogen stimulates the osteoclast. So, you know, if you're progesterone deficient or estrogen dominant, you're going to see that demineralization of bone. So the progesterone itself, supplementation or through food, uh, could actually benefit and help that process. Um, yeah, and testosterone. And okay. uh, these uh, the same factors that interrupt progesterone um, metabolism also interrupt testosterone. A high tryptophan or serotonin uh, exposure will lower your testosterone. Uh, High, uh, high um, polyunsaturated fats will lower your testosterone, and and testosterone 
protects against the parathyroid hormone and strengthens the bones. Now, in people that have, let's say, calcium deposits or things like that, like bone spurs and things like that, I mean, besides that, any other ways besides a lab to know if you're high or low in calcium? And if you do have a bone spur, can that tell you anything about your calcium levels? I think it usually happens in people who are eating too much phosphate, not enough calcium. And okay. um, sometimes a, a general vitamin deficiency can be involved because, uh, for example, niacin, amide, and vitamin A uh, mm-hmm. work to to regulate the phosphate calcium balance uh, as well as uh, vitamin D and vitamin A. But, right. Uh, vitamin K is um, a very safe thing that currently is stylish and uh, it seems to to be involved in our basic energy production uh, the way thyroid and niacinamide are. It's interesting. I mean, I, I guess I always forget the whole testosterone thing, but that's a, an interesting um, fact. Now, um, in regards to... Par- go for it. No, no. I was just going to say that testosterone is important for women to uh, the the natural androgens, DHEA, uh, and and testosterone are are protective against hardening of the arteries in both men and women. Now, would you recommend, of course, on the food side of it, but feeding the pathway from the top down, especially in women, you know, not using the testosterone. Of course, we're not saying we're advocating using it, but you know, feeding the pathway from the top down with like maybe a pregnenolone or something versus well, and col- yeah, and cholesterol. Uh, cholesterol yeah. has a protective effect against excess parathyroid hormone because it's at it's at near the top, uh, feeding your right. your liver just what it needs so it can make cholesterol. Then the cholesterol with thyroid and vitamin A will uh, let your glands make the pregnenolone, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA. All right. Now, what does parathyroid have to, uh, hormone and inflammation have to do with anemia? There's a lot of people out there that say, oh, I have anemia, and a lot of the times they're not specifying which kind, but is there a correlation between anemia or any of those in, in parathyroid hormone? Um, I'm not sure... If there's a direct connection, but um, the thyroid and parathyroid uh, tend to to go in opposite directions, and uh, the thyroid stimulating hormone uh, definitely is involved in uh, anemia, inflammation, uh, liver malfunction, and so on. Uh, so that when a person is hypothyroid, they tend to have high parathyroid hormone and high thyroid-stimulating hormone. And uh, just looking at the individual who is hypothyroid, uh, you can see that their parathyroid hormone uh, must be having uh, a role in such things. But uh, experimentally, the thyroid-stimulating hormone uh, has a definite connection to malfunction of the bone marrow and blood vessels and uh, serotonin metabolism, liver metabolism. Now, beside dairy, what is, and besides taking calcium pill, we know that you've talked about vitamin K, D, vitamin A, niacinamide, 
you know, things like that. Of course, nutrition to regulate inflammation. What are some other nutritional sources of calcium uh, besides the dairy? Um, for a, a person who wants a safe supplement, um, eggshells, if you boil your eggs uh, to get any additives and cleaners off them, uh, eggshells are the purest uh, form of, of calcium carbonate to use as a supplement. And calcium carbonate is probably the ideal form uh, to use as a supplement. Uh, crustacean shells and uh, mollusk shells and uh, eggshells are uh, natural uh, forms of calcium carbonate, but eggshells uh, usually, when they've been tested, are even cleaner than oyster shells as a calcium carbonate source. Now, how would you recommend ingesting them, like pulverizing them down into a powder and taking in yeah. you know, how much? Uh, Fourth to a half teaspoon if a person is is not getting their um, milk calcium. Okay. Interesting. Um, uh, many years ago, I had a relative who was a baseball player in his 30s. He kept breaking his arm, throwing balls, and uh, his x-rays showed that he had the skeleton of a very old man, just terrible osteoporosis. And uh, his doctor prescribed a tablespoon of powdered eggshells every day. And uh, it was just uh, two or three months, his um, x-rays showed normal bones, and he went back and uh, played ball for another 10 years or so. Never broke oh, wow. another bone. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so many women that are just told, and we see this in assessments, they come in, they're whatever, 40, 50, and they're just pumping calcium into their body. Um, well, the, the counter ion is really important. Uh, for some reason, the drug industry wants to sell uh, various things, calcium uh, gluconate, calcium citrate, uh, calcium lactate, uh, even uh, some fairly toxic things, calcium aspartate, uh, and uh, uh, things that have a toxic effect of their own. Um, so the very thing they're taking that they think is actually helping them could be making matters worse, or if uh, they yeah. are making matters worse. Yeah, the counter ion is a, a significant problem for a, a lot of the supplements. Wow, it's amazing. It's, it's just as simple as, of course, regulating nutrition, but you know, utilizing things to downregulate parathyroid hormone, uh, cortisol, estrogen, prolactin, nutritionally, as well as adding in some boiled eggshells, <laughs> which is quite cheap compared to buying all this coral calcium on these infomercials and people just going nuts over. What, um, you talk a lot about aspirin as well. Is there any correlation between maybe the, the proper use of aspirin and calcium regulation? Uh, yeah, um, uh, aspirin has some direct effects on the bone, uh, blocking the prostaglandins that cause the inflammation uh, related to parathyroid hormones, uh, glycolysis, the, the prostaglandins are 
very important factors in osteoporosis, and aspirin blocks that. But aspirin also uh, inhibits the um, pituitary stress hormones, and so can, tends to lower cortisol. And by lowering estrogen, it reduces the prolactin, uh, all working in the direction to strengthen your bones and keep blood, keep calcium out of your blood vessels in your bones where it should be. So, of course, I mean, you've written a lot, a lot about it on your site, so you're definitely an advocate of it for those reasons. Of course, reducing inflammatory prostaglandins, um, but also help is helping kind of the cells breathe in a sense to help reduce inflammation. Yeah, stimulating carbon dioxide production. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about fibrosis and calcium? What calcium has to do with that in our body and um, our artery? Hans Selye was um, concentrating for several years on the process of, uh, he called it either calciphylaxis or calcergy, uh, where calcium goes wild and uh, causes spasms in blood vessels, even shuts off circulation and causes uh, gangrene of the extremities or of the skin, uh, and uh, scleroderma, in which the skin progressively uh, calcifies rather than acutely. And uh, he showed that, that serotonin was uh, a major factor uh, the um, stress combined with local irritation uh, causes the uh, uh, first fibrosis and then the, the fibrotic tissue uh, absorbs calcium and uh, creates inflammation and calcification. Hmm. Uh, the, the inflammation... Uh, with lactic acid uh, production and the influence of lactic acid displacing carbon dioxide uh, is what uh, most immediately leads to the overproduction of, of uh, collagen uh, and eventually those same factors displacing carbon dioxide uh, will uh, cause the tissue to calcify. Interesting. So that's, I mean, that's a ton of information on dairy and calcium. Um, I think I riddled through about 35 plus questions that I had. Um, I'd love to take some callers if anyone wants to call in. We'd love to take some callers. And if you've got some questions for Ray in regards to dairy, calcium, hormones, any of that stuff, feel free to call in. The thyroid number is 347-426-3546. Um, we got a caller right here. Do you mind taking a caller, Ray? I should ask you first. Okay, sure. Okay. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, area code one one one, whatever that area code is. Oh, that's. Uh, is it me? Yeah, it is you. Oh, okay. Well, my area code's five two zero. But, um, anyways, thanks for taking my call. Um, I will keep it on topic. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Ray just talked about this, but um, maybe there's a little more that could be said. Uh, I know that there's the curious um, effect of uh, calcification of tissues when, in fact, the calcium is low. 
Uh, did I miss it, or did you already talk about that? Um, yeah, that's where uh, you get increased parathyroid hormone that uh, uh, displaces. It takes calcium out of the bones and uh, puts it into soft tissues. And that can be offset by eating more calcium and, and taking vitamin K, for example. Interesting. Okay. Um, I I uh, I don't know if uh, you want to go off subject. I guess that's the only uh, the only related one that I had. Well, go for it. We'll, we'll go for it. We'll see. We'll see how far, how far off topic you can go. <laughs> okay. I I won't <laughs> go too far. Um, and it, I, this has been a marathon too. I'm I'm surprised. Um, uh, Dr. Pete, um, I haven't seen anything about fluoride um, on your site, and I suppose that's sort of related as it, uh, I think it also has to do with cal- calcification of tissues. Um, I think you'd probably agree that, you know, it's a toxin that shouldn't uh, be in our systems, but um, where is fluoride on your radar? How much of a danger would you say it is in our environment? Oh, um, it's... Um I avoid fluoridated water carefully because uh, I, without thinking about it during a stay in San Francisco, wasn't aware that the water was fluoridated and I started getting extreme hypothyroid symptoms and I realized that the um, water that I drank had enough fluoride in it to totally destroy the uh, thyroid supplement that I was Taking, uh, so the uh, the first place that fluoride can act is um, by destroying uh, nutrients and and hormones that you might be taking. Uh, but to the extent that fluoride circulates in your bloodstream, where uh, T3, the active thyroid hormone, is also circulating, it just takes one fluoride atom to ruin the T3 molecule. Uh, So uh, my own experience with it is as a thyroid toxin, but uh, it's uh, John Yamayanis and Dean Burke did some good studies uh, pretty conclusively showing that uh, a population that's fluoridated has a higher cancer rate. All right. Uh, Thank you. Um, Thank you for yeah. I'm take <laughs> for having callers. Me. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you calling in. Sure. Bye. Uh, Ray, do you mind taking another caller? Oh no, it's fine. Okay. Uh, Erico three six zero, you're on the air. Yes. Hi, my name is Sean. I'm not sure if you discussed this already on the show. I was tuning in about twenty minutes ago, but my question is consumption of dairy. I've noticed an increase of acne, and I'm 24 years old. It's been happening since I was about 14 or 15. And people would be quick to rule out it was a hormone thing, but I've done a lot of studies on myself. Every time I ingest dairy uh, or cheese or anything with it, I have a, an increased breakout. So what would your thoughts be about that on acne and all that? Um, the um, vitamin A and thyroid and the uh, hormones, DHEA, androgens, 
uh, testosterone and, and uh, progesterone balance the uh, inflammatory and uh, anti-immune things that are normally present. I, I suspect that the connection between dairy and uh, acne is that it's increasing your metabolic rate and increasing your requirement for some nutrients. Uh, usually vitamin A is the limiting nutrient. Uh, and uh, people who, who do anything that increases their metabolic rate, uh, and calcium is a very powerful uh, stimulant to metabolism, uh, the increased metabolic rate makes you consume vitamin A uh, and probably uh, several other nutrients involved in the skin, but uh, vitamin A is is most commonly the limiting factor in uh, uh, acne. So vitamin A. I also wanted to ask you about the uh, calcium in the eggshells. You just boil those for about 10 minutes or so is what you were saying? Or? Uh, yeah, like if you're going to eat boiled eggs, uh, that already takes care of the, the toxins that might be on the shell. So you just kind of, right. I'll definitely look at that vitamin A, and um, that was an interesting answer. I've never thought about that, so thanks a lot. Thank you for calling in. All right, thanks. We got another caller, but I got one quick question for you, because you talk about vitamin A, but I know you talk about how it can actually be toxic to us. So when you recommend taking vitamin A, do you recommend people actually um, rubbing it on their skin or ingesting it? Well, uh, my own experience with um, commercial vitamin A is that I used it for many years, but then uh, the the product is constantly being changed as they find cheaper ways to do it. And suddenly something about uh, some of the products caused uh, extreme sensitivity. Uh, I can use some forms of vitamin A wildly and generously with no effect, but... Uh, uh, some of them yeah. have uh, uh, additives that make them very allergenic. And the basic toxic effect of giant doses of vitamin A, like several hundred thousand units a day, um, those invariably will reach a point where they suppress your thyroid. Uh, carotene, uh, the, the whole range of carotenes, aren't really vitamin A, but they... Uh, even more than vitamin A, have an anti-thyroid and potentially anti-steroid uh, action uh, by accumulating and displacing the vitamin A that's necessary uh, for metabolism in the, in the skin and making uh, steroids. So uh, you, you, you don't want to overload, especially on the carotenes, but... Um, Eventually, vitamin A itself can be an anti-thyroid, anti-steroid problem. Um, I got interested in uh, vitamin A because of I, I found that every time I worked outside in the summer, I got acne. And uh, people had told me that, that sunlight was good for the skin, but uh, I invariably got acne <clears throat> in proportion to my exposure to sunlight, and I figured it was some toxic effect of ultraviolet light. But then uh, one night I I went to sleep 
reading with a very bright light shining in my face and slept eight hours with that light uh, just a foot and a half from my eyes and woke up starting to get uh, pimples. And I I suddenly realized that it was uh, activating not only my retinal uh, vitamin A system, but via my my eyes, it was activating my hormonal system and consuming vitamin A. And uh, I found that in proportion to my sun exposure or light exposure, if I increased the vitamin A, I I could prevent acne. And uh, right. it turns out to uh, be protective in other ways. The uh, nutrition researcher, dentist, uh, Emmanuel Cheraskin, uh, did surveys where he found that uh, health complaints and symptoms decreased in a nice linear relation to increasing vitamin A all the way up to 100,000 units a day. But uh, anyone who is on the borderline for thyroid function, uh, sometimes even 20,000 units will make their symptoms worse by suppressing their thyroid. So you just have to be very cautious and probably starting with 5,000 units and watching for allergic symptoms and checking your temperature to see if it's inhibiting your thyroid. Uh, very often people have to get up to 20 or 30,000 units a day before their acne improves. Yeah, you're talking about the, the plant source being more toxic than the animal source? Um, yeah, because uh, it depends on vitamin B12 to be converted right. and the thyroid function is inhibited if it isn't converted. But at the same time, if you're eating, you know, a lot amount of, of good quality eggs and dairy and, and, you know, your recommendation using, you know, fresh quality liver, could you get enough vitamin A that way? Or would you still oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, one serving of, of liver a week and an egg or two every day and any milk, uh, that's a, for most people, that's plenty of right. vitamin A. Do you mind taking another caller? Sure. Okay. Uh, caller from the 617, Boston, you are on the air. Uh, thank you. Um, Dr. Pete, I have a question for you. I've been reading about milk, pros and cons, and a lot of the anti-milk articles argue that actually milk drains your calcium out of your bones because it has higher phosphorus to calcium ratio than we have in the human body. What do you think about that argument? I never really knew if it was a problem or then I heard you speak about reducing the higher phosphate foods, but would would it not matter in the milk? Oh, uh, no, the, the ratio in milk is very high towards calcium so that you can even eating some meat or other foods that are high in phosphate, uh, if you drink a, a good amount of milk, the high calcium will will uh, put the uh, those other excess phosphates into proportion. Uh, it should be one and a half calcium per phosphate anyway. Right, right. But for some reason, they talked about the phosphate being higher in the calcium. You know, and so they were wrong in that statement. Uh, yeah, on PubMed you can find uh, that discussed. Uh, 
and uh, basically um, milk is uh, next to eggshells. It's our best source of calcium. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, there are, there are lo- lots of um, movements uh, trying to think up uh, something wrong with milk. Uh, one of the recent ones is to say that all animal products, uh, beef, pork, uh, milk and cheese and eggs, so on, uh, all of these contain uh, a, a, a sialic acid form that is allergenic and uh, so will cause cancer. Uh, uh, that's probably just a, a sort of a sales pitch for a, a genetic engineering uh, okay. company. Uh, uh, any anyone with a uh, some interesting bit of research uh, will tend to um, do a lot of publicity against milk. Uh, that they claim that it causes diabetes and heart disease and so on, but uh, the um, blood pressure is one of the best researched topics that uh, milk protects against. Uh, calcium in particular. Yeah, I'll, I'll check out the PubMed. I, I mean, I came across a, a, like a review article and this this person, and I don't have the reference anymore. Uh, it was a while ago, and this person was talking against milk, and he said, I have studied 1,200 research articles, and the evidence points against the milk. So, And I haven't had time to research all the 1,200 articles, and I just took took it for granted, which I should not have done, but um, thanks for clarifying this. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Uh, Ray, I got a question for you. Uh, one of the callers just actually emailed me, and um, I honestly, I, I don't remember if you've already touched upon this, so I apologize if you have, um, but she was wondering with the increased dairy intake, um, what she's seeing is an increase in weight. Um, what in is weight? the correlation? Yes, like weight gain. What, Say the word again. Correlation? I'm sorry. Increase in in what? Body weight. Body weight. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. um very definitely the the uh, the mechanisms that I mentioned uh, inhibiting the fat-producing enzyme system and stimulating the calorie-burning uh, uncoupling protein. Uh, those are, are clearly established. Uh, papers by um, Michael Zemmel and his group, uh, Sun and Xi and others, uh, they've done some very good studies on curing obesity with, with milk products. Uh, but it's... Um, there are a lot of other groups that have noticed that uh, milk drinkers are very rarely obese, chronic users of a quart of milk or more a day. So you're saying that weight gain is actually a positive sign, or...? Oh, well, uh, no, uh, a gain in obesity is is uh, not known to be, to be produced by, by milk. Uh, if you ate nothing but Haagen-Dazs ice cream... You could get fat, but uh, uh, milk with a high ratio of protein and calcium 
to the fat is uh, the best way to lose uh, weight, uh, except that it does help to build muscle. Uh, Its anti-inflammatory anabolic effect helps to build muscle, which is a good way to gain weight. Of course. Great, great. Uh, we got time for a couple more calls. If you want to call in, 347-426-3546. It's been a great show. It's actually been one of my favorite shows. Um, uh, we'll take one more caller, if you don't mind, Ray. Okay. Area code 111, Mystery Man, you're on the air. That's, that's me again. Thank you. <laughs> um, actually, I realized that another question I had in mind uh, was related to dairy as well, because uh, it's about trans fats. And uh, there's word out there that dairy is actually a source of natural trans fats. I don't know if there's a difference between natural and synthetic. Um, and uh, I was wondering if Ray Pete had uh, an opinion on that, and maybe on trans fats in general. Are they, you know, wh- where are they in in terms of danger, maybe compared to the polyunsaturates? Um, have you heard about conjugated linoleic acid and its therapeutic benefits? Uh, uh, um, in displacing uh, linoleic? Uh, well, con- conjugated linoleic acid is um, it's being sold uh, therapeutically because it has so many protective effects, uh, stimulating the met- metabolism and being anti-inflammatory and, and anti-obesity and so on. But uh, the, that's a natural component of milk and uh, dairy fat in general. And... The trans fats are just in process uh, on the way to forming the conjugated linoleic acid. And I think uh, their benefit is that they they block the polyunsaturated fats, linoleic acid in particular. Linoleic acid is the antithyroid, pro-cancer, pro-inflammatory, uh, so-called essential fatty acid. And there there have been studies for about 20 years showing that uh, trans fats can have a protective effect in themselves as as an inhibitor of the linoleic acid uh, toxic effect. But more importantly, the, the dairy trans fats are precursors to conjugated linoleic acid, which is uh, specifically active uh, biologically in a good way. And uh, the um, the mechanism by which these are formed is uh, bacteria in the rumen hydrogenate in a protective detoxifying uh, reaction. They detoxify the polyunsaturated fats in the vegetable material that the cow is eating, and the if the cow is eating a natural diet rich in vitamin E, such as leaves rather than grain, uh, the vitamin E is a cofactor in the hydrogenating uh, bacteria, uh, turning the unsaturated fats to saturated. And in the 2% uh, of the fats that are missed, there's a small amount of intermediate, uh, not fully hydrogenated uh, material, which turns out to be the trans fats and the conjugated linoleic acid, and those in themselves, in small amounts, uh, 
I think there's good evidence showing that they in themselves have a protective effect. Huh. Um, that's amazing. I would have never thought I would hear anybody say anything good about trans fats, um, but you did add that they were in very small amounts. So is that what makes it different than, uh, say, partially hydrogenated oils out there? Uh, well, the fact that they're partially hydrogenated means that there's still a lot of PUFA left in them. And uh, I think the uh, the defense of the idea of essential fatty acids, uh, people are looking for anything to blame the toxic effects of margarine on. But uh, for a long time, it's been clear that uh, even partially hydrogenated vegetable oil is still has enough PUFA in it to to have toxic effects. Wow, that's incredible. So um, do you actually think that there's any danger from uh, just the trans fats themselves? Oh, probably if in a large amount, but um, I'm not exactly sure um, what it is because the, the research I've seen uh, doesn't really clarify uh, what it is they're doing that could be harmful. Huh. Would they uh, possibly oxidize? Um, well, yeah, but less than the purely polyunsaturated fats because they've already been partly uh, hydrogenated. Right. Um, very interesting. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad I asked. Well, I appreciate the call. Thank you. No problem. Um, I think it was Clarence Ip who did... Uh, some of the first experiments uh, showing a slight anti-cancer effect of the trans fatty acids. Wow. Lots of great info on this show, Ray. Knocked it out of the park, in my opinion. Um, we have some a couple minutes left. Do you have anything you want to elaborate in regards to just your work on dairy, your thoughts on dairy, work on calcium, hormones, any of that stuff before we kind of... Um, Shut it down for the day? Oh, no. Oh, no? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Ray, once again, um, we really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, we have tons of listeners and followers that are really enjoying your information, and I hope people um, are really respecting your time. Um, but I know people are really respecting your information, so once again, we just want to say thanks. Okay, thank you. All right, you have a great weekend. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, guys, well, there you go. About an hour and 45 minutes of Mr. Ray Pete talking about milk, calcium, hormones, fluoride, saturated fats, everything and anything. And it was quite fascinating. Like always, re-listen, 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 and re-listen to the show because you can learn a lot. Check out his articles on his website. Lots of great info there. You can order his books and his newsletter. He's um, a little bit on back order because of the quantity of, of orders that he's getting. But um, tune into our Facebook page, uh, Josh Rubin or Jeannie Rubin, or our uh, Blog Talk Radio Show page, or our YouTube page. You can get to that from our website, eastwesthealing.com. For our next show, hopefully it will be in July, I'm trying to schedule a show to talk about serotonin, tryptophan, and endotoxin in our GI system and how that affects our body. Don't forget, you can learn more about us at our website, eastwesthealing.com. 
feel free to give us a call to set up a free consultation with clients all over the world. I appreciate everyone tuning in. I appreciate everyone's support. We're all in here for the right reasons. We're all in this to help people. So thanks for tuning in. You guys have a great weekend. And go Bruins. <laughs>